This is a Lip Media Podcast. Deviant women, 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 deviant women. And welcome to Deviant Women, the podcast where we talk about deviant women from history, mythology, literature, and contemporaneity. My name is Lauren. I'm Alicia. And welcome back to another October edition of Deviant Women. How are you, Alicia, at this I'm current space and time? I am sick as a dog, as the saying goes. <laughs> Why does that saying exist? Like, how sick are dogs? A dog's well, sick maybe all the time? it's from back in the days when people didn't treat their dogs as nicely as Aww. they do now. <laughs> that's not. I nice. don't know. Yeah. And they were sick on the streets. I don't. I don't know. I have no idea. Anyway. But that's why this episode is a little bit late. So we apologise <laughs> for that. And I also need to apologise in advance for how snotty and congested I sound. <laughs> but we will push through. How are you, we'll Lauren? Because you are a trooper, Alicia. I'm good. I'm <laughs> chugging along at life. Everything's fine. But I think that, look, Alicia, there's maybe a couple of other reasons why you're feeling a little bit less, you know, yes. energetic. That's true. Struggling a little bit more with your sicknesses. It's actually got a little bit to do with something that we've got to tell all of the good folks on the HMS Deviant Women. (laughs) We're in HMS now. That's great. We should. We should start a cruise. We should start a cruise. The Deviant Women cruise. Um, Like that Backstreet Boys cruise. Yes, my dream cruise. Absolutely I do. (laughs) From our fangirling Except instead of hanging out with Nick Carter, you get to hang out with us. (laughs) Oh, my God. Does anyone want to be on that cruise? (laughs) And we tell you a different story of a different woman every day. No, it's a cruise, but it's a haunted ship. And it is filled with the ghosts of Deviant Women past. And when you board the ship, you get to hang out with the likes of Anita Barber and Josephine Baker and Shirley Jackson and I don't know, all All the the dozens of women that we've ever covered and we manifest them when we tell the stories and then there they are. We have seances. We have seances Mm. and we manifest them. So Mm. um, let us know if you'd like us to offer you that cruise in the near future. I don't know how we're (laughs) going to fund it but or how we're going to manifest those spirits. But let us know. And we'll give it a shot. In the meantime. In the meantime. A real announcement. A real announcement. Yes. So actually, funnily enough, yeah, before we kick on in today's subject matter, a couple of announcements. We've talked a bit about mothers this season, haven't we? (laughs) We sure have. We have. And that's quite interesting because um, (laughs) (laughs) for the last nine months, I have been gestating a You've been nurturing a creature. A small mammal. In my wow! In my belly, <laughs> in my belly. Yes, I'm only four fucking weeks away. <laughs> four, four weeks away <laughs> from either I don't know giving birth to like a litter of kittens, which would be adorable or, or wonderful, mm-hmm. or having some mm-hmm. kind of horrifying xenomorph experience where it like Goodness. bursts through my torso in a very sort of 
alien-esque fashion. Okay, Sigourney. We hope that that's not what happens. <laughs> uh, perhaps instead you birth a wonderful new creature into the world and... Who knows? That's, yeah, that's yeah. it. But I will say on behalf of all the Deviant Women fans, <laughs> congratulations, Alicia. Thanks. Uh, we've kept that on the download all season for, like, no particular reason. <laughs> but we just haven't bothered to mention it. But, yes, it's definitely <laughs> unmissable now. It's about to happen. It's, it's kind of like the clock is very much ticking. And it also kind of, well, it ties very much into our second announcement, which is that this is our penultimate episode of season four because after next, our last episode, Alicia has to go away and give birth and nurture a human child. <laughs> and you know what? So Hopefully we'll make it to the last episode. What if he <laughs> decides to come early? So if you don't hear from us, that's why. That's what's <laughs> happened. So, yes, it does mean we have to start wrapping up for 2020. Mm-hmm. And it also means that at the moment we don't have a date locked in to return for 2021 because mm. it will very much depend on how my life with a baby is. <laughs> how that all goes. Yeah. How that all pans out. <laughs> we hope to return. Yes, but we will see. As Lauren and I were saying just before we started recording, we're making no promises at the moment. <laughs> we're just going to see how things pan out. But hopefully everything pans out beautifully. Yeah. Just might be a little bit a little bit of a longer summer break than normal. That's right. A very long mm. sleep deprived <laughs> break where I lose all bodily autonomy and compromise constantly by the demands of a tiny human being. That you will love. Sure. Yes. Endlessly. <laughs> of yeah. course. Maybe. <laughs> Nobody knows. We'll see. Don't, well, we hope. We hope. But, hey, this is a new experience for me, so I've got no idea how it's going to pan mm. out. That'll be exciting because we'll be bringing a new person into the Deviant Women world. So That's right. A new member of the Deviant Women family. We'll get excited about that. A new shipmate on the HMS Deviant Women. <laughs> That's right. Bring him on board. <laughs> and I'm saying him because at the moment it's a he. But, Yay. you know, he will be a he until he tells me otherwise. We'll see yep. what happens. That's right. So that's exciting news. Mm, it is exciting news. And, of course, we'll keep you up to date on all of our social platforms as to when we'll be coming back for 2021. And hopefully we'll have plenty of other sort of deviant women things for you over the 2020 summer break slash winter break, depending on where you are in the world. Um, and, you know, maybe I'll even post a photo or two of the baby. <gasps> wow. You? Maybe. The most private person on social media. <laughs> <laughs> maybe I'll even put a picture of the baby's face on there for you. Whoa. Who knows? There we go. Just for our Deviant Women fans, special for you. Yeah, Emily. so that's announcement time. I think we've covered. Yeah, announcements, tick, tick, the, done, done. The important Very good. stuff there. And so with that said, let's jump Dive on. on in. Into this penultimate episode. Where where are we cruising to? Well, Lauren, funny you should ask. It's not funny you should ask. It's your job to ask. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> it is. Now, last episode, our wonderful episode on Mary Shelley, which was a terrific one, you mentioned something that sparked my idea for this week's episode because... It did. I reckon if I give you enough clues, you're going to guess who this okay. is. Okay. Because you haven't told me and no. I have wondered because I actually genuinely have no idea 
what kind of sparked your imagination, where what train of thoughts you've had it off on. I am waiting. None the wiser. None the wiser. Mm-hmm. We're going to stay in very much that gothic Halloweeny October space. Excellent. For this episode. Also, it's going to be very similar to the last two episodes we've done in terms of what this woman did. Aha, uh-huh. another writer. Yes, correct. Uh-huh. Okay. So good. I'm going to give yep. you a few clues. Clue the first. Clue the first. Okay. Now, so sorry that we're doing another writer, but Lauren, mm. you are going to guess. It's not going to take you much to guess, I think. Oh, God. Pressure is on, though. Like, it's what if on. I don't? Pressure's on, okay. but you're going to guess. Mm. So, in our last episode of Mary Shelley, you mentioned that a portrait of Mary Wollstonecraft continued mm. to hang in the parlour of the family's home. I did say that. Dominating the world of Mary's stepmother, Mary Jane Claremont. Of course, the portrait of William Godwin's second wife. Now, Mm -hmm. Lauren, I ask you, which other second wife can you think of who is haunted by the presence of an unmatchable first wife? DeMaurier! Yes! Daphne DeMaurier! Rebecca! I knew it wouldn't take you very long. (laughs) Yes! Are we doing DeMaurier or Rebecca? We're doing DeMaurier. But of course, that will take us to the world of Rebecca. Of course, that wasn't going to take you very long (laughs) to guess. I feel relieved now. (laughs) That's good. That was easy. (laughs) It was. I had every faith in you. This is, of course, so we're going to be talking about Daphne du Maurier, who was a writer, for those who don't know, most famous probably for her novel Rebecca, which is another gothic tale Mm -hmm. set in a very gothic mansion. And they've just released a new series, which I'm super excited about. Sorry, I probably interrupted. You were probably going to mention that. Yes, you're right. That has only just come out here in Australia. Mm -hmm. Yep. And that's on my watch list after The Haunting of Bly Manor. Oh, okay. Yes, I saw that that was finishing. Well. So yep. yeah. So we're going back to another sort of mistress of the macabre and mm-hmm. gothic stories. I mean, she didn't just exclusively write macabre and gothic stories, but she definitely did delve into mm. this, the realm of the sinister. She's great at it. She's fantastic at it. And so it's definitely time that we came around to do De Maurier and we will Go to the realm of Rebecca as well for those who aren't familiar with it. Fabulous world. So very exciting times. But, yes, another author. So sorry that we've done three in a row. (laughs) But, hey, you know what? No one's complaining. No. (laughs) And also this leads into your Halloween season as well because one of the great things about Daphne du Maurier is so many of her stories, so many of her novels and short stories have been turned into Mm -hmm. film adaptations that you can watch Mm. and a lot of them are really, really perfect for the spooky season. Well, Hitchcock, he bloody loved her. He did. He made quite a number of her stories into films. He did. Actually, funnily enough, that's an interesting one because he sort of did but didn't love her in an interesting <laughs> sort of way. Like he liked yep. he liked her stories, but I don't know if he entirely rated her as as a person, as a writer. As a, oh, but I, but he did like her stories. But anyway, we will come to that. Yes, okay. and that Great. is of course one of the most famous connections that she has to the film world. So yeah, a lot of films you can fit into your spooky season that relate mm. back to her. Mm-hmm. So in her lifetime, her a lot of her books were sort of marketed as romances. Yes. And she gets kind of lumped in as a romantic novelist, but which yeah, I mean, something like even Jamaica Inn has mm. some of those old school 
19th century romantic kind of themes that where romance and gothic sort of intertwine. Yeah. And I mean, she does have some very over the top sort of campy love stories as well. And um, you mentioned Jamaica Inn, but also Frenchman's Creek springs to mind. But most of her best known and I think best loved work is darker. And it does have those layers of psychological Mm. thriller Mm -hmm. and drama and those sinister sorts of themes. So at least 12 Film adaptations have been made of her various stories. More than 40 television dramatizations exist wow. of her work. So probably a lot of our listeners have already encountered her tales in one way mm. or another, even if even ha- if you don't know. Yeah, mm. even if you don't know and even if you've never read her, you're probably familiar with the Daphne du Maurier story. So today let us make you familiar with the story of the woman herself. Yay! So, yeah. so she Tell was, us. She was born in London in May of 1907 and she was the middle of three daughters. Now, her parents were fairly successful in the arts already, so, of course, this would influence her greatly as it did her two other sisters who also went on to uh, – her elder sister, Angela, went on to become a writer and her other sister – Really? Yeah, and her other sister went on to become a painter – Though neither of them quite as successful as Daphne de Maria, obviously. But a very arty family. So, again, much like Mary Shelley and much like Mary de Morgan from the episode before, <laughs> a person who grew up very much surrounded by mm. those sorts of familial connections into the arts, you know, that would help to establish her as a writer later on. So, you know... Despite those sort of leg ups, I suppose, into the industry, she does deserve the props that she gets because she's a terrific writer. But it's just interesting to think about how these last three episodes, we've talked a bit about women who all (laughs) sort of had, you know, moved in a sort of a socially privileged world of the arts. Don't we all fucking wish that we'd had that upbringing? Well, (laughs) I mean, there's a reason why certain people get, it's not to say that any of these women are not talented because I think we've spent so much time gushing about how much we love them and, and yeah, the fact exactly. that they're all geniuses. But let's be honest, there is something to be said for the privilege that you grow up in and how likely it is that that talent is going to, you know, manifest itself into something that is a viable career. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> really. exactly. So it'd be nice to move in one of those circles. Yeah, um, sure would. <laughs> sure would. So her father was an actor manager. He was also a sir, la-di-da, Sir uh-huh. Gerald de Maurier. And her mother, Muriel, was an actress as well. So she grew up surrounded by actors and celebrities, including the actress Tallulah Bankhead. Oh. Yeah, who she mm-hmm. herself described as the most beautiful creature she'd ever seen, wow. apparently. She was. And yeah. She was. Tallulah Bankhead was quite beautiful. And, of course, speaking of family influence, so not only was there an artistic sort of influence there from her family, but... There's also been some speculation about her relationship with her father, who, yeah, despite his artistic Mm. leanings, seems like he wasn't a particularly great guy, perhaps. Oh, no. Yeah, for a couple of reasons. So (sighs) this is important because I think we can see, well, it's important because it's problematic and we shouldn't gloss over it, but it's also important because it does really feed into sort of thinking about the work that de Maurier mm-hmm. goes on to write as well. Mm-hmm. So firstly, it's been noted that he was really quite homophobic, which oh. to be honest was not particularly unusual for the time that we're talking about. Mm. But 
As with many sort of homophobic people, I would suggest this is me going out on a limb, but this was perhaps because he was not entirely um, at peace with his own sexuality. I see. Yes. Indeed. Indeed. Yes. Indeed. Mm-hmm. There's a little bit of repressed self-shame, which is obviously awful if that is if, the case. If that's the case, yeah. Mm. And then that's the fact that the outlet for that was that it yep. turned into a homophobia. So his sexuality is an interesting one. So not just necessarily that he was quite possibly bisexual and couldn't come to terms with it, but also that his relationship with his beloved middle daughter, Daphne de Maurier, mm. was perhaps a little bit inappropriate. Oh, dear. I wondered if that's what yes, you wanted to say. Yes, yes. And that it was noted that he would often be touching her in rather intimate and inappropriate ways, even in the company of others. Okay. And this was all when she was still quite young, mm. in her pre-teens, essentially. Mm. And she even apparently remarked to a number of friends in, in later life that she and her father had crossed the line. <gasps> what? Yes. Even though she never what really... What the fuck does that mean? Precisely. So this is a oh, really no. hugely problematic part of her early life. Yeah. That's never really been entirely confirmed. But there is a mm. hell of a lot of speculation that she and her father obviously had some kind of level of incestuous relationship, whether or not that ever did actually become, you know, one that went as far as a, a, a sexual mm. one or well, whether or bet, not. Uh, yeah, yeah and it's really hard to know. But the interesting thing about it is that it does make a lot of sense in terms of the writing that she goes on to do. Mm-hmm. And at least the suggestion that there was something slightly more than just platonic in their relationship because a lot of her work has a lot of very Freudian themes at play. Right. And let's also, like, let's just make it very clear that if the age difference and the power difference there is is not a relationship like no 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 relationship is know, a very yeah. is a very generous term for me yeah. to be using there yes absolutely yeah. no no it's it is in no way acceptable and in no way forgivable but it i think that it is interesting to think that this may have mm-hmm. informed some of the writing that she went on to do. Um, and mm. I don't say interesting in, in like a flippant sort of way where it's like, oh, isn't that like la-di-da, you know. Yeah. How interesting that this hugely horrific thing may yeah. have informed your writing. But at the same time, no one's actually ever been able to confirm that this was right. indeed the case. And it's always been speculation rather than fact. Right. So it's... It's a difficult one to begin with, obviously. Mm. So as I say, it's a difficult one to sort of deal with because there's no sort of proof, there's no evidence, there's merely speculation Mm. and some implication here and there and some suggestions from other friends and family members, but there's no proof of this. So Mm -hmm. we can't really know definitively whether Mm. or not this was a part of her upbringing. But whatever intimacy there may have been in regards to this, it did begin to change as de Maurier became a little bit older and as she reached her teens because this was also when she discovered that her father was also quite the player ah. and he'd been having numerous affairs with other actresses. So and this is apparently around about the time that she really started to resent him. Yeah. 
as well as becoming jealous of him and angry at him for what he was doing to her mother. So really like just quite a complex fucking (laughs) fucked up scenario essentially. Yeah, really fucked up. On so many multiple levels and just something that I don't think – you know, when you think of Daphne Jamoria, or if you ever think of Daphne Jamoria, I don't think this is anything that ever just pops into your mind about her, you know? Like, it isn't. I certainly didn't know about it, no. It's not common knowledge. And she did actually later write a biography of her father. And in it, she didn't paint him in the most flattering light, although she doesn't make any suggestions towards incest in that biography mm-hmm. either. But clearly, and I do mean relationship here as father and daughter relationship, yep. clearly yep, yep. it was a very fraught, very yep. difficult, very problematic relationship. Well, it seems like he's obviously, regardless of whether or not there was any abuse happening mm. in the household, he was obviously a very difficult man yes. <laughs> in terms of like clearly if he's having affairs and he's, you know, harboring maybe some self-hatred as well, you know, I can understand why that would be a fraught. So we, we've just talked about how she's had this, you know, rather privileged upbringing in the arts, but at the mm. same time, mm. perhaps not. Well, the- you never know what's going on behind closed doors, no matter how fancy those doors are. Exactly. That's precisely right. So you can have a gilded fucking door, can't you? But yep. doesn't mean that what's yep. going on behind it matches up to that wealth no. and privilege. So as I did mention, though, that world that she moved in of her parents' world did have an influence in helping her to get her foot into the door into publishing. And she did begin writing at quite a young age. And there were a few really formative sorts of influences on the imagination that our young Daphne Tamoria would come to form for the kinds of stories that she would like to write. And she did begin publishing quite young in 1928. Of course she did, yeah. In 1928, she began publishing short mystery and suspense stories in various magazines. Yes. Yes. Such a good way to start a career. (laughs) And yes, publishing short stories. (laughs) And eventually most of these short stories would end up in a collection called the apple tree but not until the 1950s but you can find that collection still Mm. of many of her early sorts of short stories and mysteries and suspense stories but it was only a few short years later in 1931 that she would publish her first novel at the age of 24 24 fuck her (laughs) and this novel was called the loving spirit now i haven't read this one actually no i haven't either yeah but apparently it's a bit of a family saga following four generations of the coombe family now she began writing this in 1929 when the family were holidaying at their holiday house in fowey in cornwall near the sea now Cornwall becomes Mm. a very influential place to her. It sure does. It sure does. Often appearing as a setting in her stories, being near the sea. Mm. The sea is actually a huge motif in her work. It is, yes. Massive motif. Massively. Also, so is seafaring. Mm -hmm. Another huge influence in this early novel is it's about a shipbuilder. It's about the sea. And she often writes about seafaring, piracy. This really captured yep. her imagination. See, I was totally on point with my HMS. You were. On top of the you show. so just were. A little bit psychic. Totally on point. Because this was heavily sort of influenced by her ramblings around the Cornish coast when she was staying there with her 
family because there were a few things in this Cornish landscape that captured her imagination. And the first of this was the wreck of an old schooner called the Jane Mm -hmm. Slade. And this was the idea for this first novel, The Loving Spirit, which was based around the true history of this particular wreck that she came across. And she did some research into the family who had built the ship. And so that novel is based around Mm. the, the Cornish coast and the family and That's this cool. particular wreck. So she spent a lot of her time sort of delving into this kind of history and that's what captured her imagination when it came to these ideas of seafaring and piracy and smuggling and all of this sort of stuff. And and where a lot of her really big kind of romantic ideas, I suppose, like those works of hers that are more along that romantic tradition, they are really kind of fun, rompy, outlandish. Like you said, with pirates, with smugglers, with shipwrecks, with lone girls wandering along the Cornish coastline in the dark and getting themselves into all kinds of trouble. All kinds of trouble with handsome pirates. Yeah. That sort of thing. But, of course, this wasn't the only thing that she came across in the Cornish coast that would inform her Mm -hmm. imagination because – in her ramblings about the woods, there was Did something else. she get attacked else? by birds? No. <laughs> <laughs> no. No. Okay. But there was something else. There was something else. Okay. Lauren, there what? was. A pixie. A derelict old mansion. A derelict old mansion. Of yes. course. Called yes. Menabilly. Now. Ooh. This was an abandoned old family house and she would prowl about the land sort <gasps> of peeking in at the windows. Of course she did. (laughs) And, of course, it was this, you know, it's just a dream come true. It was one of those derelict, ivy-covered sorts of... Like old grand kind of manse-type business. Yes, yes. And, you know, through the sort of peeking through the windows and the shutters... You could sweeping sort of, away the cobwebs. Yeah, yeah. You could sort of the, the floorboards are creaking, the, the wallpaper, the leaves are crackling. Yeah, yep. tearing oh. off the walls and the, the spiders scuttling into the corners. Exactly. And apparently, once she even got enough courage up to sort of creep through a window, Ooh. and she found herself in an old nursery with a <gasps> battered old rocking horse. And oh my god, <laughs> I know creepiest <laughs> fucking thing ever. So amazing. You can imagine. How incredibly informative oh, this was for her and how yes. this stuck in her mind. And I can't imagine this is too far from the sea either, right? Like, no, it's right, pretty much mm-hmm. right next to the sea. And so you've got big old haunted mansion. She's creeping on through the windows, brushing away the spiders. And meanwhile, you've got the sounds of the swell of the sea yep. crashing against those Cornish coasts. Yeah. The smell of that salty, briny air. The mixing storm with the rolling must. in. Yes. Exactly. Fabulous. So it is, it's a gothic dream, essentially. Gothic dream. Gothic My very dream. own. <laughs> gothic dream. So this really, we can we can already see what this is setting us up for, where oh, this is yeah. taking us. And if you've read any de Maurier, you know where this is going. <laughs> you certainly do. So now The Loving Spirit was quite successful, not least because, which remember, The Loving Spirit was the one about the, the shipwreck family. and the yep. shipwreck family and mm-hmm. all of that sort of stuff. Now, not least because there was quite a bit of a marketing machine behind selling it because, I mean, after all, she... Came from a well-known family. Mm-hmm. She had a good name behind her and she herself was quite young and lovely. And can I just check, Demoria is her family name, isn't it? You said Yes, it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 
And so there was definitely a publicity machine behind it. But that aside, it did get good reviews based on Mm -hmm. its own merits. It's not just because of that publicity machine. Because we should tell you, like, Demaria can write. She knows what oh, she's doing. She fucking can. Of course. And it, even though in some of her novels she gets really over the top and she does get a little out of control. It's melodramatic. It's yeah. melodramatic, <laughs> yeah. but it's a hell of a lot of fun. It's a hell it's of a so lot of fun. It's so fun. She's this is the thing. Like, she's the kind of writer who knows her genre and just fucking leans into it. She's like, you know what, I'm gonna write a gothic novel about smugglers on the Cornish coast, and I'm just gonna lean all the way into that and give you everything you could possibly want in a novel about smugglers on the Cornish Precisely. coast. And delivers and does yeah. a wonderful job of it. It doesn't yeah. have to be subversive. It doesn't have to be like, you know. No, it's just a good Pulling tricks time. out of its hat. It's a fucking good read. Exactly. Yeah. And with this particular novel as well, some critics likened her writing to Emily Bronte, which, yeah. of course, pleased her no end because that would yeah. please anyone no end. Yeah, absolutely. I can totally, totally <laughs> see that. And she, of course, loved the Brontes. In fact, <laughs> do you think? She, yeah, I know. Do you think there was an influence there? Maybe. <laughs> yeah. In fact, she eventually wrote a biography of one of the Brontes, but it was Branwell. Interestingly, oh, right. the, um, <laughs> the forgotten Bronte, the forgotten <laughs> the brother, <laughs> the lesser known and less yeah. interesting brother. <laughs> but yeah, she wrote a, a biography of Branwell Bronte Why later on in life. Why would she write a biography about? Is it because she knew that so many biographies had been written about the sisters that she's like, you know what? I'm just I'm gonna, gonna get a finger in the pie, but yeah. the others have been done, so I'll do. You I'll know do what? Fine. I'll be the one who does Branwell. Well, actually, Branwell was quite an interesting character. He was quite a tragic character as well. Mm. So I think that probably appealed to her as well. Yeah, true. But anyway, speaking of things that appeal to people, the loving spirit very much appealed to one reader in particular. Oh, yeah? Who is this? A certain Frederick Browning, known as Tommy, who was an officer in the British Army, and he enjoyed the book so thoroughly and (laughs) Demoria's writing so thoroughly, Uh he decided to visit the... Oh, did he fall in love with her from afar through her words? He did, yeah. Mm. He decided Mm. to visit Cornwall and sort of like stalk her. Stalked yeah. <laughs> shit. <Yeah. laughs> like, did, did it turn out that it was like a lovely, like, oh, I've fallen in love with you from afar and now I've come here and actually he's great and they get along really well and everything turns out fine? Or is it like, oh, God, I've got this fucking dude <laughs> who's read my works. No. And. No, it's not that one. It's the first okay. one, which is good. But I think, you know, it could have very easily been the second one. <laughs> which is a bit like one. that happened to Shirley Jackson as well. Her husband, Leonard? He fell in love with her through her work as well. And so did William Godwin. He fell in love with Mary Mary Wollstonecraft through her writing. Just there you go, ladies. That's how you get a man. You just write a book. You write Write a a really good ripping book. Yeah, but then those men turn out to maybe not be not great. The best? No, they're actually all of them are kind of a bit shit. Because if they kind of idolize you through your books, (laughs) then. Maybe that's not the best basis for no. a relationship. I don't know. At least they respect you intellectually. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> anyway. Anyway. So he had to go down. Yeah. So yep. he heard that she was in town recovering from an appendix operation. Oh, shit. As you do. And he sent her an invitation to join him on his boat, which you do to somebody Oh, she would have been rec- like recovering uh, from great. an operation. 
I will take my newly stitched up stomach <laughs> onto the choppy seas with you because I love the sea because I'm Daphne du Maurier. Well, that's true. But it worked out and a romance evolved, <laughs> which led to him proposing to her, but she rejected him because oh. she didn't believe much in marriage. And I suppose after her sort of... After her father's... After her father's philandering and mm. that strange possibility of... Maybe that's why she didn't believe much in marriage. This could be. Still, she did want to be with him, just not as his wife. But apparently a mutual friend sort of convinced her that that was pretty much no good for, we'll call him Tommy, that's what how he was known, mm-hmm. for Tommy's career, <laughs> for them to live out of wedlock. So Demoria finally sort of came around to the idea of marriage and she proposed to him. Nice. Which he... Of course, accepted. <laughs> and they were married in 1933 and they did end up having three children together, Tessa, Flavia and Christian, who went on to be known as Kits. Now, just to refer back to uh, that problematic thing with her father. The potential child abuse. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Apparently he was very upset about her marriage to Tommy, oh. calling it unfair, whatever that okay. might mean. Oh, no. Yeah. And Tommy was 10 <sighs> years her senior, which was, you know, I mean, that's, that's not fine. massively substantial, but perhaps a bit of a father figure in there as well. Really? It's very difficult to know. It's very, very difficult to say. 10 years age gap in the 30s is Nothing. so normal. Yeah, it's not really much at all. But her relationship with Tommy and their their marriage would as well Go on to influence, of course, the great Rebecca that we will come to talk about (sighs) soon, 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 soon. We're going to get to it. Now, um, so in the meantime, Demoria and Tommy, they get married. Demoria continues her writing. Now, even before The Loving Spirit was published, she'd already finished and submitted her second novel to her publisher, which was I'll Never Be Young Again. And this is an interesting one as well because Mm -hmm. it's very different to The Loving Spirit and it's quite risque because it follows two bohemian lovers in... Oh, fantastic. Well, bohemian Paris. (laughs) Maybe this is the life that she wished that she was living with, but instead she was with Tommy who didn't want to live a bohemian life because that would ruin his career. Yeah, that's true. But it was so risque, in fact, that the publisher wasn't quite sure about how it'd be received. So they published fewer copies than The Loving Spirit, Mm -hmm. but they could obviously still see in it that, you know, Demoria was already the kind of writer who had a really broad range and a really broad Mm. talent, and Mm. she could kind of shift between genres already and shift between modes and styles already. But as they suspected, it didn't quite have the same reception, and many of her family and friends actually outright hated it as a novel. too sexy? Yeah. A little bit too sexy, a little bit mm. too risque. But this wasn't going to stop her and it certainly wasn't going to stop her from being risque because she already had the idea for her third novel. Oh, although this one took some time to write. This, so her third novel is The Progress of Julius and it, again it showed that Tamaria was a totally loose cannon in terms of genre <laughs> and what she could produce. And, okay, I'm sorry that this keeps coming back. Oh, no. <laughs> Interestingly... This novel is about a father who is weirdly obsessed with his daughter. Really? Yes. God damn it. So in her biography of De Maurier, Margaret Forster, she has a biography. There are a few different biographies. Margaret Forster's biography is an interesting one because of some of the claims that she makes in her particular biography. Mm. She notes that there were exercise books 
full of earlier notes for that novel that ended up being scrapped. And they were even more sort of concerned with the intimacy between the character of Julius, the father, and his daughter, but also in the earlier sections of the novel between Julius as a boy and his own Mm. father. So even though Forster sort of asserts that none of this proves that there was ever any actual sexual contact between Demario and her father, it does, and this is in Forster's words, indicate that the physical contact between fathers and children fascinated if not troubled her. Mm. And Mm. so, I mean, that is definitely true because this is something that does come back in her work Mm -hmm. again and again. So whether or not it is actually something that happened to her or whether it's just something that she really did become sort of hung up on, I suppose. It does come back in her work again and again. But then, you know, Forster then also goes on to mention essentially that, of course, the very fact that Tamoria didn't shy away from writing about such things with the knowledge that her father and many, many, many other people would read it perhaps suggests that there's no resemblance between this relationship and theirs. Perhaps. Yeah, yeah. Otherwise, uh, why would she put it out there for everyone to read? Yeah, or also potentially if there had been anything like that, would she be capable of writing about it as in, you know, Mm. would she be carrying too much sort of, I mean, trauma manifests in all kinds of different ways and people deal with these kinds of childhood traumas in different ways. But, yeah, would she be able to write a novel like that that's not inherently about that as yeah do you know what I mean I do Mm. of course we can't know though we can't know and this is a huge question that looms large over this you know the early portion of her life it's a really Mm. really troubling notion and it's a difficult one to come to terms with and it's one that we can't come to terms with because Mm. we simply don't know but he wouldn't go on to read much more of her work anyway because he passed away only a few short years later in 1934 now, also, just to be clear, I'm not aware of any suggestion whatsoever that Demoria herself ever touched any of her own children in such a way or, you know, I don't want to suggest that there's any sort of like cyclical sort of nature to okay. this. Okay, yeah, 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 um, sure. Yep. You know, there's absolutely zero suggestion of any of that sort of stuff. It's simply something that does play into her work though yep. and that we do see arise there. So, in fact, if anything... Um, with her own children, later on in life it was suggested that she could be quite cold towards them, especially when she was very preoccupied with her writing, which mm. she was most of the time. A lot of the time. <laughs> because after writing The Progress of Julius, she went on to write Jamaica Inn, which, <gasps> woo! Woo! again, <laughs> of course, takes us back to the world of water romp, piracy, ships, smugglers, a beautiful, sinister little sort of setting that we've got. Mm-hmm. And this was inspired by an actual real place that yes. she and a friend stumbled into during a storm when they were yeah. out riding <laughs> they're out riding their horses and they got lost during a storm. And I think this is based also on real events. It's yes. sort of a, a range of events that she's distilled. It's not like a particular event that it's based on, but it's based on a tradition or a kind of group of yeah, I don't, I don't want to say too much without giving spoilers, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely, that's right. So, again, it is inspired by real a real place, real events. I think it's still even there. I think you can still even go to yeah. Jamaica Inn. And this novel was published in 1936 and it would be the first of three films that uh-huh. you know who was going to. Hitchcock? Gonna, yes, correct. Yeah. That was going to adapt from her work. Now, 
We don't hear about this version of Jamaica Inn much because, frankly, DeMoria and Hitchcock both ended up hating it. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, I didn't actually even realise that Hitchcock made Jamaica Inn. Yeah, so what ended up happening was for Hitchcock, there was far too much interference and control by mm. the producers. One of the producers was also the main star, Charles Lawton. Now, you probably, the name <laughs> might not mean much to you, but if you look up Charles Lawton, you'll know his face. You'll know the okay. actor. And he's in a lot of things. And it was basically set up as a sort of a vehicle for him, essentially, mm. with Maureen O'Hara as his co-star. But he's not particularly good in it, <laughs> even though he isn't really a bad actor. I've seen him in plenty of other stuff. He is a bit hammy and over the top, but that's kind of because he came from that tradition of theatre actors, I suppose. Yeah, sure, yeah. But this film really for him was pretty much a vanity project by the sounds of it. And so the result was that by the time it came out into the world, Hitchcock – Hated it. Demoria hated it. And they both basically just, just like, it. Nah, forget it nah, ever happened. Forget Let's it. move on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it also led to Demoria being really hesitant about giving over the film rights mm-hmm. for her next. Her next novel, Alicia. I know where we are in time, <laughs> so I'm assuming yeah. what this next novel is. Does it, yes. does it start with an R, perhaps? It does. does it end with an A, perhaps? Yes, and the middle bit might oh, be good. A, Becca. A, a Becca. Rebecca, correct. Now, in 1936, Tommy was called to Egypt and Demoria sort of reluctantly followed him there. She didn't much enjoy it, but she fell pregnant here with her second child and she returned to England briefly to give birth and then she left her newborn child and her, her first child behind basically to go back to Egypt to Tommy. But this okay. sort of brief reprieve. They did from, that a bit, didn't they? They did. Back I mean, she didn't just abandon the, them. The social, she, no, I'm sure they had high-class nannies who took care of them in their giant home. That's correct, yes. And she returned to Tommy in, in Egypt, but this brief reprieve from her children was the time in which she began work on Rebecca. And this was published in 1938. And as, as I mentioned before, her marriage with Tommy really did influence its writing because, you see... Demoria knew that before Tommy came into her life, he had been engaged to a woman called Jeanette Louisa Ricardo. Oh. Or simply Jan Ricardo. But Jan had broken the engagement off and left him. And it was by chance, as such things happen, that one day Demoria, opening one of the drawers in Tommy's desk, slash oh. maybe snooping around, you can say, <laughs> discovered a stash of love letters that Tommy oh. had kept from. Jan, yes. The previous woman. And the previous woman, which, of course, she proceeded to read because, you of know. Course. Of course, obviously. Well, privacy. Who needs <laughs> Why would you respect that privacy? So Jan was quite elegant, quite dark, quite beautiful. She was known as quite the wit. She was a bit of a society sort of woman. Yep. And did the housekeeper just adore her? <laughs> we can only assume, yes. And. Even her handwriting in these letters mm. impressed Demoria and intimidated Demoria. Oh, I can imagine. <laughs> you know? I imagine her sitting there just being like, oh, my God, who is this woman, this Precisely. fabulous, elegant, you know, glamorous woman who mm-hmm. came before me. Yeah. So she became a little caught up with the idea that Tommy, you know, must still be in love with Jan in order to have kept the letters for so long after their mm. breakup. And this niggled at her thoughts, mm. making its way into her fiction and inspiring <laughs> her, of course, to write what is her magnum opus, Rebecca. It is. It truly so is. we've Rebecca. made it. We've made it to Rebecca. Rebecca. And 
I know you're probably going to tell us all a million things about why we should all read Rebecca and how fabulous it is. But truly, 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 Rebecca is a masterpiece. It is is. brilliant. It It is is stunning. It gets under your skin and it's, oh, if you haven't read it, Take it as another Demon Women book recommendation to add to your pile and get on it. Oh, and it just stays with you. Like it's just does such a terrific book. So the basic plot, and look, we won't give too much away because it is a psychological thriller. It It does have so many fabulous gothic influences Mm. in it. So we don't want to ruin too much for you. We don't want to ruin it at all for you if you haven't (laughs) read it. But just to paint the scene, the basic plot for those who are unaware is that we have this unnamed narrator, essentially, who we kind of come to know as the second Mrs. De Winter. That's Mm. the best name that we can kind of give her. And she's travelling as a companion to an older lady, essentially, which was not unusual. Often Mm. women were hired to do that, to sort of be It's a pretty good job, except that you've got to put up with that, you know, grumpy old lady. old lady. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But still, like, pretty much worth it to do a nice little tour of Europe. Yeah. And while travelling as this lady's companion, she meets Maxim de Winter, the older, charming, handsome. handsome. Oh, Max. And, of course. Laurence Olivier. Yes. (laughs) Laurence Olivier plays him in the Hitchcock version. Joan Fontaine plays the Mm -hmm. unnamed second Mrs. de Winter. And... We'll come to her in a moment. Um, (laughs) We'll come to that other fabulous character in a moment. And so anyway, obviously by the end of this trip, Maxim has fallen madly in love with our unnamed narrator and asks her to marry him and takes her home to Mandalay. Mandalay. Last night I dreamed of Mandalay again. Exactly. Which, of course, is... A big old ramshackle mansion <laughs> by the sea. Yeah. It's Menabilly. It's Which also looks fabulous in so, Hitchcock's film. And the, that opening, that it's beautiful perfect. opening. Perfect. So good. And I love the fact that in that opening, she does all those whoops. Like, <laughs> you know, it's hard to do. Like, the what? <laughs> when? Where? Where? It's hard when to, I was at Mandalay. Yeah, exactly. It's hard to do Maxim. that. It's hard to do it without kind of hyperventilating. <laughs> so she returns with Maxim as his new wife to this huge mansion that is infused with the mm. presence of his dead first wife. Yeah. Who is, Rebecca. of course, Rebecca. <laughs> of course, that's the Rebecca that we're talking about. Mm. And... Rebecca's memory, Rebecca's ghost, her presence is held in this beautiful Gothic mansion. It's held here Mm. by the fabulous Mrs. Danvers. Oh, so fabulous. If ever a creepy housekeeper there was, it is Mrs. Danvers. She is so wonderful. Shirley Jackson wrote some good creepy housekeepers. She did. But Mrs. Mrs. Danvers Danvers is top notch. She is. She's top of the pile for creepy housekeepers. Yeah. And she (laughs) is obsessed, obsessed with the memory of Rebecca. 
And of course, incensed that Maxim should have brought someone home to try to replace mm. Rebecca because mm-hmm. that's obviously impossible. Obviously. In the film version, she's played brilliantly by Judith Anderson, like yeah. just fabulous. Also, Judith Anderson does a pretty good Medea as well. Really? As a, as a there you go. Note. Yeah. <laughs> and so the book, of course, you know, the book and the film are different things. Yeah. They very much are. If you're going to watch the film, yeah, absolutely, by all means, do. It's a masterpiece. But do read the book as well because the, yes. the book is it's, it, they're both they're both masterpieces. <laughs> they are. They truly are. As you said, they are both their own creatures and mm. they are both masterpieces in their own right. But it is also an excellent adaptation in the sense that it's the kind of adaptation that captures what is so difficult to capture in an adaptation which is that tone mm-hmm. and that, that sense of the book, an yeah. atmosphere. That's, I mean, and for me, a really successful adaptation captures the atmosphere mm. and the voice and the tone of the book mm-hmm. far more than it does plot because you can't, yeah. that's a totally different beast to, yeah. to translate a plot. But yeah. I think I've said what I need to say. You get and it. Because, and yeah, absolutely. And because it does deviate in little ways from mm. the plot of the novel, but it still holds together in its own wonderful way. Yeah. So the novel was, was released in 1938 and the film was released in 1940. Mm. And the novel, you know, the novel received critical acclaim. It made her a superstar. And then when the film came out, that also received critical and commercial mm. acclaim. It was nominated for 11 Oscars in 1940. Yeah. Wow. Which is more than any other film that year. It won two awards, which was Best Picture and Best Cinematography, and it's the only film that Hitchcock ever won Best Picture for. Truly? Yeah. So, I mean, as well as being, so arguably, as well as being Du Maurier's finest work, it could also be called Hitchcock's finest work as well, at least in terms of how the Hollywood establishment viewed Mm. things Mm -hmm. because it's the only one of his that ever won Best Picture. I think everybody knows how we each feel about are both, you sure? Both DeMaurier and Hitchcock's Rebecca. Are you sure that this has been made clear? Should I don't know. more time talking about it, do you think? <laughs> I don't know if it's clear. I just want to make sure it's clear. And actually, we were just saying before that there's a brand new spanking adaptation of Rebecca that's just been released on Netflix. I haven't watched it yet. Mm. That's a pretty ambitious thing to do. I oh, don't know God. if I, I would ever want to do that. I absolutely agree. Like, obviously, I'm going to watch it. I'm going to devour it. But I'm a little bit scared because, you know, it is so hard to to adapt. And when you're following in the footsteps of of Hitchcock and Mm -hmm. even though it's been, God, oh, my God, nearly 80 years. Holy shit. Oh, my God, nearly 80 years since that film came out. So, look, that's a good stretch of time. But still, yeah, that is a real challenge. So big we, shoes. we shall see how it goes. We shall. Very, very big shoes to fill. <laughs> now, as an aside, though, Jan Ricardo, who was the woman who I said mm-hmm. was the most probable inspiration the first for, wife? for Rebecca. Yep. Oh, sorry. Well, fiance. Fiance. Yep. Quite sadly, she actually went on to commit suicide <gasps> some oh. years after the novel and after the film's release. She threw herself under a train, which is quite tragic. Oh, God. She was only 39 and she had a two-year-old daughter at the time. She had apparently read the novel and presumably seen the film. She was apparently very well aware of the fact that she was Mm. probably the influence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she was most likely the first Mrs. De Winter. And, I mean, no one can say if that had any bearing on her taking her life, though, of course. But it's quite... I don't know, it's quite a tragic story to think yeah, that, that is really the influence for 
quite a gothic and tragic novel yeah. had quite a tragic end. With a character, because, I mean, it's not a spoiler to say that Rebecca is dead. <laughs> yes, she's, <laughs> she's dead Rebecca, from the like, start. So pretty yeah. much the thing. So this is another young, I think, because the character Rebecca would have been a, of a similar age, wouldn't yeah. she? Yeah. She's in her maybe mid, I mean, mid-30s, I always pictured I her as her mid-30s. Yeah, same. And another tragic ending, yeah. really. Yeah. So that's a really, I mean, obviously, Demoria could have no idea. But that <laughs> you know, would that's, come. No. That's totally out of anyone's hands. Yeah, but it is sort of a sad, mm. I guess, one of those sorts of life imitating. Mm-hmm. Who knows? Yeah, life imitating art, yeah. imitating life, imitating art. Yeah. yeah. Who can say? But, of <sighs> course, there were many other adaptations that would come from her work. And Hitchcock's other most famous adaptation was, of course, of her short story, Lauren. The birds. The birds. <laughs> Is that you actually doing like your Moira crowning type bird? <laughs> the crowning. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's right. Excellent. Although that adaptation wouldn't come until 1963. There was also um, a 1952 adaptation of My Cousin Rachel, which was another mm. one of her very popular works. Very big and one. And that starred Olivia de Havilland. Demoria didn't like that one much. There was a remake in 2017 with Rachel Weiss. Was there? Oh, of course there was. Yes. Yeah. I never saw it, but I meant to see it. Why did I never see that? I should get around I don't to that. Know. Uh, not to mention numerous sort of BBC versions, of course, in between as well. But the fact was that Demoria sort of started to, in a little way, Oh, this is an interesting one because although she actually really liked and championed having stories adapted into films, she also sort of started to resent the fact that there was this growing sense that, you know, by critics or she felt there was sort of this implication that she was only writing stories so that they could be turned into films mm-hmm. and that this started to become really part of her image as a writer. And, yeah, and she worried that people thought that this was the only reason why she was writing stories now was so that they would be turned into films. Yeah. But, of course, she considered herself first and foremost an author. And she wasn't writing the screenplays. Well, she... Was she? Or no, she... not for the most part. Advising? She, so she did have a lot of influence in some stories. She co-wrote the screenplay for the 1943 Hungry Hill adaptation. Okay. She worked as a producer on the 1959 mm. adaptation of her novel The Scapegoat. Now that one, she also did everything she could to make sure that Alec Guinness ended up starring in that film. Okay. Which he did. But then she regretted it because it was a complete fucking flop and mm. it was not a success at all and she'd even partly financed it. So mm. that was a mistake. But one adaptation that she really did love and that I would recommend as some Halloween watching was not until the 70s though actually, was an adaptation of her short story Don't Look Now and this Mm. starred Donald Sutherland and Julie Christie. It came out in 1973 and it's got all those terrific fucking weird trappings of 70s horror slash thriller movies. Like it's just... yep. It's a hot mess. I haven't seen this. I'm pretty sure I've read the book because I'm pretty sure I've read the short story collection, Don't Look Now. Yes, exactly. Which would have and included that story. <laughs> that would be the title yes. story. So I do know the one you mean. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So, yeah, that's the short story it's based on. And that's from the collection Not After Midnight, I think, is the collection okay. that that one's in. So that's the collection that you're talking about. Mm. But she really loved that adaptation. Even though, again, it deviated very much from the story itself, she thought it was really quite terrific. Uh, So that might be some fun 
mm. Halloween watching. And a lot of her short stories actually might be some good, like, quick Halloween reading because yes, definitely. they're quite accessible and really fun. Yes, they are. And, I mean, obviously all of her stuff is still in print. Rebecca's mm. never been out of print yeah, ever. Yeah, amazing. You can delve definitely into the world of Demoria without much trouble at all. So – Anyway, let's keep going. Otherwise, we're just yeah, going yeah, yeah. to yeah. get nowhere. So Rebecca made Demoria a superstar, essentially, as well as quite a wealthy writer. Mm. It was, as I said, a hit between 1938 and 1965. It sold over 3 million copies. As I said, never been out of print. It won her the National Book Award in the US in 1938. It made her so wealthy, in fact, that she was able to approach the Rashley family, who owned okay. Menabilly. Oh, this old rambling house in Cornwall that she fell in love with. Correct. And she was able to take out a lease (laughs) on this derelict old mansion in Cornwall. (laughs) And so, as I said, she'd been trespassing there for years, essentially. But they gave her a lease on the house and she moved in and hired some workers to restore it. Mm Mm-hmm. And she, she stayed here right through until the late 1960s when she was eventually forced to move because the lease ran out and the Rashley mm. family. They want their had, house back. They wanted their house back. They probably got a but, son ready to inherit. Well, pretty much, yeah. The father died and the son yeah. wanted to move in essentially That's typically is what, what happens. <laughs> but she did get many very good years in this house. But, of course, the rest of the family were not quite as enchanted with Melanie <laughs> as She's their got, like, was. her three kids. I'm like, Mom, why do we have to live in this gloomy house <laughs> exactly. on the Cornish coastline? <laughs> I want to be in London with my friends. It's the swing in 60s. And because when they moved in, no heating. Yeah, yeah. You know, everything was freezing because it's on the coast <laughs> yeah. right next to the Cornish fucking ocean (laughs) apparently it was full of rats and bats and pixies and yes and pixies but bats lived in it bats lived in the mansion no fair enough that's pretty spooky yeah there was like you know fungus growing on the walls (laughs) and shit skeletons in the walls nuns paved behind the (laughs) oh my god hang on a minute let me tell you let me tell you what's your story well, one of the things was so the north wing of the house was off limits because it was like about to collapse. So there's no always an off there. limits wing there of the is. house. And, and do we know to trespass in the off limit wings of the houses when we're young gothic women? Of course we're going to trespass in the, the to. wings, forbidden wings of the houses. But Lauren, this is yep. the best bit. And I don't know if this is true or not, but okay. I, I hope to God it was. They also discovered. A skeleton bricked up in the cellar. Actually bricked up. No fucking joke. So That is apparently... Not two minutes ago on this very podcast, I made a joke that there was a skeleton bricked up in the wall. Yeah. And there was a skeleton bricked up in the wall. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's my nightmare death, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) But it's also very Shirley Jackson, isn't it? It is very Shirley Jackson. But apparently they discovered a skeleton bricked up in the cellar with a table <gasps> and a pair of shoes. Oh, God. So Menabilly was essentially a haunted mansion. They have to get a medium in there immediately <laughs> to find out who that person, what were they bricked up while they were alive? Were they bricked up so that their soul wouldn't escape and haunt everybody? Were they bricked up as a punishment? Did they brick themselves up as some sort of Christian penance? Who can say, but oh, it's hella fucking ween. Wow. So that is the best 
apocryphal Demorier <laughs> fact I've ever ever oh, great excellent fantastic. I hope it's true. I, I hope I it's I true. sure do too. Although, I mean, I feel very sorry for that person who got bricked up in the cellar. Yeah, obviously, like I said, that's my nightmare death. So. That is a nightmare death. But anyway, Manibili is still there as an estate. Uh, unfortunately, there's no public access to it mm. and it's very difficult to even get close to it because I suppose most people are always – I suppose a lot yeah, of people – probably always knocking on the door. <laughs> Hello. Hello. Excuse me. <laughs> is this where Daphne Demario lived? <laughs> so they've moved into this derelict fucking mansion and no one's very happy about it except for Demario who's like, yay, I'm living my best life now. Yes, she sure did. <laughs> <laughs> but when the Second World War happened, Tommy was frequently called away again obviously, mm. and this left quite a hole in Demoria's life, which she apparently filled with an affair oh. with a local landowner named Henry Christopher Puxley. Oh, but Tommy wasn't to be outdone, and when he finally returned from the war, he also had himself two mistresses on the go oh, at the same goodness. time. Have they finally come around to this bohemian lifestyle? Yeah, but sadly... Tommy struggled, as many mm. men did, yeah, as course. you can imagine. And, yep. of course, perfectly understandable that just about any anyone who would come back from mm. the Second World War would be hugely fucking troubled. And he missed so many years of his children growing up as well. Yeah. So when he returned, he returned to this kind of derelict house with these children who were kind of virtually strangers to him in a lot mm. of ways. He turned to alcohol, of course. Mm as well as prescription drugs. He was involved in a car accident, or I should say he was re- responsible for a car accident oh. in which two people were injured, not not <gasps> killed, but oh injured. Oh, my God. Okay, I thought that was going to go in a different direction. No. Still. <laughs> Still. And, of course, you know, these sorts of things happen more and more frequently mm. and they were hugely scary for the family, for Demorier, and eventually he died practically right in front of her from a heart attack. <gasps> Oh. In 1965. So he was only in his 60s. So quite a tragic sort of end yeah. to their marriage, quite a tragic end to his life. But also not to sort of be outdone by his wife's film exploits, he went on to be immortalised in a film. Really? Yeah. In 1977 he was portrayed by Dirk Bogard in the film A Bridge Too Far, which you've probably really? heard of. Yeah. Which was based on the events around a military operation called Operation Market Garden that happened during the Second World War. Yeah. And Frederick... Tommy Browning, so Tommy is mm-hmm. Dirk Bogard is the main character. Wow, and it was actually based on him. Yeah, his, a real operation that he was yeah. involved in. Exactly. There you go. Yeah. Wow. Because he was quite the decorated war hero, essentially. You know, which obviously doesn't make up for all of the trauma and doesn't stop you from being no hugely traumatized. But he was a, a very well decorated war hero. But Demoria was really unimpressed with how he was represented in the film. Mm. To be honest, I haven't seen that film, so I don't know what that representation is like. But A Bridge Too Far is pretty much one of those films that is just like one of those ones where they just get every actor under the sun in it. And it's got Robert Redford and Anthony Hopkins and fucking Sean Connery Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. Dirk Bogart and like it's just – one of those ones where it's just a, yeah, a star parade. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But she was very unimpressed with the film and she wrote to many newspapers to let them know that she felt that the representation of her husband was unfair 
and yeah. was inaccurate. Yeah. But yes, as I said, I don't really know what that sort of exactly that representation was. But now I'm really interested to watch a bridge mm. too far. So I might there do that. It's do probably it. it's not Halloween watching. You can watch it in November. That's maybe a more appropriate month for yeah. war films. There you go. That is that's the war film month. It we'll is. Go, yeah, right, November. Good. Yeah. Great. So <laughs> now, as well as writing novels, she did write a couple of play scripts as well. Um, the first of which was a stage adaptation of Rebecca, which came oh, out in the same year fabulous. as the film was released. Then in 1943, she wrote a sort of a partly autobiographical play called The Years Between, which loosely revolves around Tommy's absence from her life mm. during the Second World War. And then her third play was September Tide, which opened in 1948. Now, this one's an interesting one. And we're getting towards sort of the end of her life now. This was an interesting one because September Tide as a play starred a woman named Gertrude Lawrence. Mm -hmm. And remember how I mentioned this biography by Margaret Forster earlier? Well, Margaret Forster really makes quite the case that Daphne du Maurier and Gertrude Lawrence had a lesbian relationship. Okay. Interesting. And this is after Tommy's died? Oh, well, no, this would have been while Tommy was still alive. Uh, Okay. Because this play was during the the end of the 1940s. Okay, yeah. So her claim is that du Maurier had a relationship with Gertie as she was known, but also that she had a relationship with another woman as well named Ellen. And so Forster kind of goes to a lot of lengths to really make a case for Demoria having uh, being mm. bisexual. This has been vehemently denied by other biographers and friends and family. Okay. Not, I don't think, necessarily because the idea horrifies them, mm. but just simply because they don't think that that's the case. Yeah. And they think that Forster tries a little too hard to, okay. kind, to like of, kind of fit it, make it fit. To make it fit into her yeah. biography. But one of the interesting things about Gertrude Lawrence is that she had been one of de Maurier's father's lovers. Oh, God, okay. So oh. that makes it an oh, even... that adds, Oh, that adds all sorts of Freudian levels of shit. It does, doesn't it? It yeah. really, really does. So that's a really difficult one, and I don't know if there's really much evidence of this actually being the case. I mean, yeah. certainly de Maurier was close to Lawrence. She was uh, was close to Gertie. She was close to Ellen as well, mm. um, the other woman in question. Like, she was close to these women, but that level of, mm. of intimacy mm. is perhaps a little bit exaggerated by Forster and okay. might not actually really be the case. Which is another one of those impossible to kind of confirm things, which we've, yeah. uh, I mean, we've talked about this before. We talked about this last episode, in fact, that whole, Precisely. you know, not ever really knowing where the line is in a lot of these historical accounts of female friendships slash potentially female lovers. We often do, particularly when we're looking through a revisionist lens, want to apply these, you know, kind of. And look, it even could be just contemporary understandings of intimacy Mm. onto Mm -hmm. some of these relationships. But we can, of course, not really ever know. Yeah. And, I mean, it was – I do actually think that it was denied by Gertrude Lawrence herself as well. And was Gertrude Lawrence, was she – do we know of whether or not she identified as a lesbian? 
or bisexual or anything? I don't know, but I, I don't think she did actually. Mm. I'm not really sure if there's much sort of clout we can put mm. on onto those claims, but it is one that's worth mentioning because I do think, it, as you said, it brings up that interesting idea around when we do look at biographies, how are we revising people's lives? Like yeah. what is that information that we want to put in there? What mm. is that scandal that we want to put in there? And as with her father as well, you know, how can we know, how can we prove any of these mm. things? And it also not knowing and not being able to prove doesn't mean that we shouldn't talk about them. It doesn't mean no. that they're something we should push away. And also because they're things that might be difficult or problematic also doesn't mean that we should pretend aren't there. Uh, it just means that we have to do it through a lens that's careful. Like, you know, we have to be careful about it and we have to be transparent about it and we have mm. to, you know, acknowledge and show that awareness of the, all of the grey areas. Yeah, and I think it's worth, I do. I really do think it's worth at least mentioning those sort of grey areas. And there is another grey area mm. as well to Tamoria, which is a little bit devastating to end Uh-oh. on, actually, as we come to the, towards the end of her life. <laughs> Because there have been a few accusations of plagiarism. No way. Against. Not my Demarie. I know. Plagiarism. That is devastating, isn't it? So, again, I don't know how much we can offer a definitive assessment on this. Okay. But there are two accusations in particular, <laughs> which are really interesting, because these two accusations are about Rebecca and the <gasps> birds. No. Yeah. The, so two the of the, first, the best ones. Two of the best ones. And look, I'm going to be <laughs> – I don't mean to side too much with Demorier here, but I'm going to sound like <laughs> – we've, we've made our love for Demorier quite clear. I don't, I don't think it's a surprise to anyone that you might side with Demorier on this that one. <laughs> yeah, that I might take a side. But the thing is, is that even if the premise of these stories are plagiarised, Demorier is still – this is terrible. I'm sorry, this sounds terrible <laughs> – even if she's plagiarised the premise of these stories, okay. she still okay. wrote the stories. Okay. Well, I guess okay. it depends on what you mean. Okay, so where are we drawing the line in, in terms of plagiarism? Because if we're talking about the basic framework of a story, well, I hate to break it to you, but we are all plagiarists all yeah, the time. Yeah, that's true. Like, that's very but if true. it comes to character development, well, characters themselves, character development, particular plot points, sentences, sentence yeah. structure, that's a different thing. It so, is. It is. And, look, I haven't read either of these other two works, so I don't know. And I'm really reticent to read them now because mm-hmm. I'm terrified that they're going to destroy Demoria for me, and I don't want I that to just, happen. No, no, but, but again, what about homage? Whereas, you know, like obviously, <laughs> I'm like obviously super against plagiarism, but I also don't think that anyone owns like the idea of a novel about a second wife. Or okay, a- well, yeah. So let me tell you. Let me tell you about these two specific cases and we'll mm-hmm. see. So the first accusation came from Brazilian author Carolina Nabucco and she published a book called The Successor in 1934. Okay. Which right. of course as the title suggests mm-hmm. has a very similar plot to Rebecca and apparently contains many similar plot points. Right. All right. Okay. Yep. That's potentially problematic. Yeah, there's even a suggestion that there is perhaps some dialogue that's similar. oh shit oh no 
That yeah. is no, that's not okay if that is the case. So if that's the case, then that is plagiarism. Yeah. But as I said, I haven't read that, so I don't know. Mm. And the other is from an author, Frank Baker, who um, believed that Demoria plagiarized his novel, which was called The Birds. The Birds. <laughs> but he was advised against taking any action against her. Really? Now, as I said, I haven't read either of these. But so this is the thing, though, that does play into this, is that apparently De Maurier did work as a reader for her editor and it is thought that she may have read, A, the translation of Nabucco's mm. work when she sent it to try and get it published in English. Oh, and that she also may have been a reader for Frank Baker's The Birds. Okay. So they're actually <laughs> there might be some truth to these claims, mm-hmm. Lauren, which is fucking devastating. Hey. Yeah, that is. Like, can you imagine? We've just gushed. We've just spent an hour gushing about Rebecca and there is a slight possibility <laughs> that she didn't invent Rebecca. Oh, she didn't invent Rebecca. But at the same time, there is a lot of her personal biography. Yeah, that's true. That like you said. did inform and influence Tommy. Rebecca. Mm-hmm. So even if there is another story that has those same plot points, Demoria's Rebecca is still her Rebecca because that yeah. is actually – that's a provable part of her personal life. Yeah. So, and, and as well, like, you know, there are – if you think about the numbers of books that are on the surface the same as each other, mm. I mean, come on. The list is endless. It's what you do within the pages that's different. It's what yeah. you do It's on who, in who those characters are that you create in how they interact with each other, the atmosphere that you set, the voice that you use. There's only seven plots. (laughs) So, yeah, that's right. Exactly. Not that I'm forgiving. I'm just saying that I think. Has anyone anyone who teaches in an English program in a university will tell you there's only seven plots. Yeah. And books are far more similar to each other than we like to think. Yeah. They are. So I hate to end on that downer of a note. (laughs) Well, we'll have to just seek out these two other texts and we shall have to read them and compare and find out for ourselves if that is the case or not because that's the only way you can know, isn't it? you got to read it. Yeah, exactly. You have to read it and you have to compare. But essentially... Look, we've, we've, we've pretty much we've covered Demoria as best we can in the time allowed to us. Much like Mary Shelley from last week, there is a lot more that mm. we can do. I do think that regardless of this possible devastating revelation <laughs> here at the end, there is an episode still in the works I think that we could probably do on Rebecca just itself. Of course. So who knows, we might come to that. One of these days in the future. We'll return to Mandalay again. We will. We will return to Mandalay. But I should, of course, mention that Demaria, she went on to write. She kept writing short stories, novels. She passed away in 1989, aged 81, which is actually really quite. It's quite old. That's actually later than I thought. I don't know why, but in my head I probably just picked her at dying in the 70s. Same. I didn't really realise that she kept living through until the end of the 1980s. But apparently she passed away peacefully in her sleep and, you know, that's Mm. the best way you can go essentially, isn't it? And that brings us to about the shape of Daphne Maurier's life. There you go. Roughly. We all now have many more books to read, many more films to watch. 
Two standouts that you have to read and watch, of course, are Rebecca and the Birds. The two contro- now the now two that I found out the two controversial works, but both of them, both in written form and the film's exceptional pieces of work. Yeah, look, I still love them, and until I read those other ones, I will continue. And in fact, maybe to we should them. share a particular image of you from one Halloween a couple of years ago. Oh yeah. Where you paid homage to the birds, in fact. I did. In costume Although form. of course famously Hitchcock was an asshole when they filmed it. He was and genuinely spent traumatized. A lot of, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and genuinely spent a lot of time traumatizing his dad. Yes, so he did. He was yeah. a dickhead, but he was he was a douche. He was. But anyway, he was. but he he made a beautiful film. Yeah. So I guess we've... No, we don't forgive. We just accept. (laughs) It's the difficulty of life. But I think that that does bring our October Mm. Halloween spirit very nicely to the end of this month. Our last two episodes are quite beautiful Halloween episodes. I feel we've done a very, very good job in keeping in a spooky season spirit of things. With lots of spooky gothic things to go and watch and read to keep you going well beyond October. Exactly. And so if you haven't as yet, you've got Frankenstein from last episode that you need to get onto and you've got Rebecca from today that you need to get onto. And look, I am falling apart. We've got to wrap this thing up because you've got to go and rest yourself. I have to go and rest my snotty, snotty face. I have to rest the tiny human that is gestating inside of me. Nurturing a creature, just like Mary Wollstonecraft. Exactly. Which last week, or last episode when we were talking about that, (laughs) we did want to mention about nurturing a creature, which is essentially what I'm doing right now. So basically just got to go and collapse in my Okay, well, bed, you do that. Do right and now. in the meantime, we'll be back in another two weeks for our very last episode of season four before our summer break slash maybe your winter break or maybe your summer break or maybe your mid-rain season uh, fiesta. I don't know. Fiesta. Wherever you are in the world. <laughs> your festivus for the rest of us. And in the meantime, we've got a new, we'll have a new Patreon episode out very shortly as well, we hope, <laughs> if Alicia doesn't fall apart on us. <laughs> Hopefully I can keep it together. I don't know. I'm getting very tired. And, of course, in the meantime, you've got so many, so many episodes, past episodes to choose from to catch up on. And you can rate and review us. We, of course, love Mm -hmm. to get those coming through. And keep an eye on the Etsy store because not only can you – well, international shipping, unfortunately, is still not open, but we um, are working on a new T-shirt design that we hope to launch soon. So keep an eye out for that. Otherwise, you can still get your Divi Women, Lady Pirates, Give No Fucks T-shirts and your enamel pins. And as always, we have to say a very, very big thank you to India Hui for the music, to Brendan Davies for the sound, And Dan, our executive producer, we'll be back with you in two weeks' time for for it, for the end. For the end. For the last one. Oh, no. We'll see you then, guys. See you then. Bye. Bye.